Good morning, all zero of you listening to this audio journal. Christianity is not under attack. Christianity is under counterattack, and that counterattack is long overdue. You don't get to throw the first billion punches and fire the first billion shots and claim that you're the one being attacked. You don't get to play the victim. Just because you attacked someone who turned out to be ready to stand and bang with you instead of just taking the punches. That counterattack? It's going to come in the form of truth. Violence and people being hurt in general is exactly the problem we are trying to solve, and the best way to do that is to finally have a conversation about the fact that Christianity is not real. This is not an opinion. This is a matter of historical record that historians have been aware of for a very long time. From the very beginning, in fact. There has always been an unspoken agreement among mainstream historians that needs to be re-examined, reconsidered, and reversed. This counterattack, it isn't intended to target Christians personally, but rather this very agreement. That's the target. So what is this agreement? Well, this agreement is the unspoken agreement that the, that mainstream historians should not focus on debunking Christianity or any other religion. And that's based on the belief that while these religions, especially Christianity, may not be historical fact, religious texts like the Bible served a valuable purpose in allowing people to unite and share in a compassionate moral code, to follow a rule set which dictates that we shouldn't hurt or undermine each other. How mainstream historians arrived at this agreement, I'm not entirely sure. Because to believe that the existence of Christianity in the present day is a net positive for humanity is just not true. I don't believe that the existence of Christianity has ever been a net positive for human beings. Oceans of blood have been spilled, countless millions of lives ruined and straight up ended violently in service of an entirely fabricated mythology that purported to depict the will and desires of an all-powerful supernatural being. Whether or not it was ever true that Christianity served a positive purpose in human civilization is debatable. But what's not debatable is the fact that it absolutely does not serve any useful purpose now. The purpose Christianity serves today is to be used as a justification by literally the worst people in this world as a justification for ruining people's lives, taking away their freedoms, attacking them, and claiming that the will and desire of a supernatural being is what they're following in doing so. When in reality... They're hurting people because they simply want to, because it makes them feel big, makes them feel powerful. In the past, these sadistic cowards have justified getting their sadistic rocks off by using their faith as a basis for laws that they've created in 11 states that make sex between people of the same sex illegal. And certain sex acts between heterosexual couples are also illegal in 11 states. Basically, any sexual act that isn't male, female, penis, vagina, reproductive intercourse 
is punishable by law. Eleven states. Think about that. That's what they've done in the past. And now, now that we finally managed to fight and scrape and crawl and gain a few civil rights, they're looking to deprive us of those. Those mainly came in the form of three Supreme Court decisions. The gay marriage decision that allows us to marry the one we love. The Obergefell decision that prevents any state from making a law and arresting people simply for having a consensual physical relationship in the privacy of their own home as consenting adults. And they want to reverse the decision that allows us access to things like condoms, birth control, prophylactic protection against STIs and other things. That is what Christianity is being used for today. That is its purpose in the present day. Now, saying that Christianity is entirely fake, that's a pretty bold claim. I'm working on a research project right now where I'm compiling all of the reasons that it is fake, all of the historical records that prove that it is fake, that it was a complete fabrication. But I wouldn't make a statement like that, that Christianity is fake, without being fully prepared to back that up right now. The project I'm going to record here and release later is going to be a lot more comprehensive, but I can give you a lot of the broad strokes right now. Just like the people who wrote the majority of the Old Testament around 721 BC, I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. So around 721 BC, that is when the kingdom of Judah arrived at Jerusalem. Around this same time, the northern kingdom of Israel was in Samaria, and they were wiped out by the Assyrians. Leading up to arriving at Jerusalem, the tribe of Judah had settled on the coast of Palestine after the Sea People had conquered the people that lived there before and wiped them out during the Bronze Age collapse. Now, being surrounded by these threats, the Sea Peoples, which were various races of people who were traveling around on the ocean and basically annihilating everyone that they encountered as they found new landmasses. And then there's the Assyrians, the uh, ancestors of today's Syrian people, among others. It's complicated, not going to get into the weeds with that. But suffice it to say, the Israelites had been through a lot. They traveled a long way and they were tired. And they were surrounded by threats. What they decided was that they needed to unite their people. They were a ragtag bunch that were barely hanging together. And being surrounded by all these threats and not knowing what to do, they realized they needed to create a banner for everyone to unite under. And that is when the majority of the Old Testament was written for that purpose. Prior to that, 721 B.C., all of the tribes of Israel, as well as all of the other groups around that region in the world at that time, were polytheistic, meaning they had multiple gods that they worshipped. Prior to that, worshipping just one god was not a thing. It simply wasn't. Now, 
what really matters about this is that this occurred near the end of the Old Testament. Like I said, I'm starting at the end and working backwards. So, prior to this point in time, they were polytheists. They had multiple gods. They did not worship one god. And yet, look at the stories of the Old Testament. All of these interactions between Abraham and God, between Moses and God. One God. You remember how angry Moses and God became when the Israelites were worshipping the god Baal, the golden calf after they had been delivered from Egypt. During that time, they were polytheists. They weren't just worshipping one god. They weren't just worshipping Baal or Yahweh or Jehovah. They were polytheists, meaning that that story could not have possibly unfolded in that way at all. But that's not the only reason it couldn't have. The main takeaway from this point right here is that prior to their arrival in Jerusalem and the annihilation of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, the Israelites were polytheists. Period. Full stop. End of story. Worshipping one god did not exist at all as a concept for the majority of the entire span of time covered by the Old Testament. That alone, right there, discredits the entire document, the entire book. But there's more. So, moving on. We're moving backwards here. The Old Testament was, the majority of it was written around 721 BC, and at that time, that is the only part of the Old Testament that falls into the category of history. So to understand the significance of that, you have to understand that historians divide history into three columns, three classes of uh, fact. First, there's myth, and that is something that either is not documented anywhere else, is unprovable, is just a story, and, and is likely even contradicted by actual historical record. You know, all indications are that it is absolutely not true at all. So that's myth, that's the lowest level. Then there's legend. That is something that could or could not have happened and isn't documented by any other source, but it also, it also is not contradicted by any kind of continuity of any other historical record. There's just no proof that it ever happened. That's legend. There is a little bit of legend in the Old Testament. But mostly it's myth. And then there's the third category, which is history itself. And that means that there is historical documentation to back up the places, people, and events that are depicted. There is a tiny bit of history right at the end of the Old Testament, and that's all. Around that time, the parts of the Old Testament that cover that time period, around 721 BC, are basically accurate as far as when these cities and countries had been established, when they existed, and even some historical figures that lived during that time. But as you work backwards things get less and less accurate. And it makes sense. When you're fabricating an entire religion that covers this giant, giant swath of history, well, they didn't have Wikipedia back then. Whoever did write it, the fact that they even had the names of these places <clears throat> that existed back then is kind of amazing. These probably were the greatest scholars of their day, but they did not have Wikipedia. Hell, they didn't even have Encyclopedia Britannica or anything else that was any kind of well-researched, well-established, you know, a documentation of history and geography. 
and the people who wrote this were probably the greatest scholars of their day, but the information they had access to was so limited that, of course, as you go further back from there, your information is going to be less accurate. Now, supposedly, the Bible was inspired by God, telepathically beamed into the heads of the people that wrote it. Now, I understand that humans are imperfect, but God's supposed to be perfect. And if the parts that they wrote around the time that the Old Testament was actually written are accurate, and it's being inspired to them by God, there's no reason that as you work backwards, things should ever get less accurate. And God, being the perfect being that he is, well, he wouldn't just accept the first fucked up draft that's, you know, provided to him in response to being inspired. He wouldn't just be like, oh, human, you tried your best, you got way off by thousands of years on a lot of stuff, but you know what? I'm just going to accept that. No. That is not how a perfect, supernatural, all-powerful, omniscient being, omnipotent being, would behave. How it would operate. Not at all. It's not consistent at all with any depiction of God in any part of the Old or New Testament. Nothing in any of that explains why the events and timelines and even the existence of the places that these things occurred, there's nothing that explains why it should get less accurate. But what does explain it is the fact that as you go further back, at least at that time, information gets more and more sparse the older it is. We didn't have libraries back then. We didn't have halls of records. We didn't have any really established way of retaining this information. There were scribes and scholars and people who did retain what records they could find. And usually they held a pretty vaunted position in whatever society that they existed in. But still, they were just winging it. Just like the person who wrote the Old Testament. Person or people. It's, it's very unclear. But what is clear is that by the time you get back to Genesis and Exodus, well, the cities and countries where these events in Genesis and Exodus supposedly took place, these were cities and countries that did not exist for another thousand years. The places that these events were depicted to have happened in were off by millennia. They weren't even established yet. And by the chronology, they would have have to have been established if those events had occurred in the order that they occurred. But they didn't. Historical records from multiple civilizations back this up. You see, the Israelites were a people that traveled from place to place. They were kind of a, a homeless race of people for a long time. They didn't have an established base of operations until Samaria, until Palestine, and until Jerusalem. They were nomadic. The Egyptians, however, were not, and they kept excellent records. So, the end of the book of Genesis, by then, places, times, people, cities and countries, these were the settings for these events that happened, and those places didn't yet exist for another thousand years. That is off by far too long for it to be a simple error. 
But this is perfectly well explained by the fact that that information just wasn't available to whoever was writing this book. So, let's move on to Exodus. The Israelites, and I don't know any other way to say it than this, were never slaves in Egypt. I'll repeat myself here because you need to get this through your head. The Israelites were never slaves in Egypt. There was a time during the, the period where the Israelites supposedly were slaves, according to the Bible, where Egypt was actually conquered and ruled for a while by a group called the Hyksos. But after about a century, the Egyptians drove them out. Now, according to the historical records that Egyptians kept, they did keep slaves. That was something that they did. They don't hide that. And they, keep very, they kept very good records of who they kept as slaves, where they came from. And none of them were the Israelites or any tribe that eventually became them. This is not only backed up by Egypt's record of where their slaves came from, but it's also backed up by historical documents found that were created by completely different nations and cultures besides Egypt that place the multiple tribes that eventually made up the Israelites, the Hebrew people, in completely different parts of the world. That's right. The Israelites lived in a completely different part of the world for the entirety of the time that they were supposedly slaves in Egypt. Exodus did not happen. Moses did not exist. In fact, the story about Moses being placed in the basket and floated down the river to save him as a baby, that was lifted beat for beat, almost word for word, from a religious myth that was created by a completely different nation of people. Whoever was writing the Bible around 721 B.C., the Old Testament, obviously they had encountered that myth and decided that they wanted to lift that because it gave them a very interesting origin story for their protagonist, Moses. This is not an isolated occurrence. There are events throughout the Old and New Testaments where these myths, these legends, were lifted from the religious mythology of other nations and assimilated into their Old Testament that they were writing. But you know what? That's not a new thing. It's, it's the oldest thing there is. Artists copying each other. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you're looking to create some kind of a work of literature, that's not the worst way to do it. I mean, whoever wrote it, they folded it into the narrative pretty well. But the fact is, the story of Moses was actually the story of a completely different person from a completely different nation. Now, I could go on and on and give you example after example all day. And that is what I'm going to do when I complete this research project, record it, and post it. But I think that is enough for now to give you a taste of what's going to be in that. I'm going to recap a little bit here. 721 BC, the Old Testament was written in order to unite the Israelites. Around that place and time, things are historically accurate as far as depicting which nations and cities and people existed. As the only part of the Old Testament that can be considered anything like actual history. And as you work backwards to the beginning of the Old Testament, 
the chronology gets off by tens and hundreds and then thousands of years. As information becomes less sparse as you work your way back in time, the writing becomes less accurate. And that's no accident. That is just how things worked when you were a nomadic people who had no city you could call your capital, your home. This was entirely a fabrication based on a very limited set of information. Okay, that part of the recap is done. I know that was a little, a little wordy. I'm kind of winging it. So that was point number one, how things get less accurate as you get further away from the time at which that was written. Point number two, until about 721 BC, when the kingdom of Judah arrived at Jerusalem, all of the Israelite peoples were polytheistic. Everyone in that region was polytheistic. Everyone worshipped multiple gods. Worshipping a single god, one god, was not a thing until the Israelites' arrival in Jerusalem, responding to the threat by the Assyrians, Sea People, and others. So for almost the entirety of the Old Testament, these stories that supposedly depict the relationship between one God and his chosen people, for that entire time, those people were actually polytheistic. Okay, so that's point number two. Point number three. Well, as you get back to the very beginning of the Old Testament, the cities and states and countries where these things happened didn't exist for a thousand years. And point number four. Like the story of Moses in the basket in the river, throughout the Old and New Testaments, there are stories that are lifted from other cultures and their religious mythologies and folded into their narrative to make it interesting, to make it plausible, to make it interesting enough to keep people reading to the end so that this faith will be something that stays around for a while. Because in addition to uniting people, you also have to entertain them. So that alone, right there, it doesn't discredit every part of the Bible, but it does establish that the vast majority of the Bible can only be considered myth and a few parts legend at best and just the tiniest smidge at the very end could be considered actual history. The rest is thoroughly contradicted, debunked, not possible to have happened according to all other historical record from all other nations at that time. So yes, while there might be some parts of it that happened towards the very end of the Old Testament, so much of it has been discredited and contradicted that not only is it irresponsible to place any trust in this document at all, it is insane. It is insane. And look at the substance of it, the content, the value of it, the quality of it. The narrative that, that is given by God, this draconian, cruel, vengeful God, is that when your conscience comes into conflict with your faith, you must always side with your faith, and your conscience can go fuck itself. The conscience that God gave you, by the way. There are stories of genocide, where God told the Israelites that the land of Canaan was theirs for the taking. All they had to do was kill every man, woman, child, puppy, kitten, goat, everything but the fucking plants. Everything had to die. 
then that land was theirs because God said they could kill everyone and take it. That's a recurring theme. You see, part of the reason the Bible was even written in the first place was, yes, to unite the Israelites, but also to justify and be used as a basis for certain military actions. There are a lot of parts of the Bible that were actually created specifically to create a system of morality that was pre-engineered to be incompatible with the people they considered to be their enemies at the time. It's an absolute guarantee that Leviticus 18.22, that says that, you know, gay people should be put to death, uh, this being inserted into the Bible absolutely corresponds with the Israelites coming into conflict with another culture where same-sex relationships were accepted. That is a recurring theme throughout the Bible, both Testaments. Justifications for military action. You know, as far as just the pure depravity of the Bible. There's a story where a woman was arranged to be married with uh, a Hebrew. A high-ranking, important Hebrew. And... She actually was in love with someone from another tribe and they were going to be married, despite the fact that she was promised to this, this Hebrew, this Israelite guy. When he found out, he stormed over to the, the chapel where they were going to be married and he impaled the bodies of both his fiance, his promised fiance, and the man that she was actually in love with and wanted to marry. He impaled them both on one spear, killed them on the spot, gutted them right there in the middle of the church. And God, according to the Bible, was so fucking happy about this that the next few generations of, of that Israelite's family got to be priests and prophets. Rewarding that kind of violent misogyny is a recurring theme. Both Testaments. And, by the way, that tells you everything you need to know about the person who wrote that fucking story. The through line to the entire Bible, the underlying theme of everything, is justifications for righteous violence. Now, if you're not familiar with the term righteous violence, it's violence that is committed against someone who has done something so irredeemable that they have forfeited their right to live. Righteous violence. It's in every action movie where countless henchmen get mowed down, where the bad guy gets killed at the end. It's gruesome, it's violent, it's people losing their lives, but it's okay because they were bad people. That's why they call it righteous violence. And that really was the purpose for the entire thing being written. Because in order for the Israelites to maintain their home and be able to stand up to these threats around them, they needed a way to mobilize the martial resources available to them and to keep those soldiers motivated and fighting for something, quote, bigger than themselves. Now, there are parts of it that seem innocent, that seem like they're altruistic in nature. Because doesn't that sound good? They want to defend their home. They want to unite their people and keep them motivated so that they can defend their home. But it doesn't stop there. If that was all it would if that was all it was, that would be fine. Just to unite people and motivate them to fight for their home, that'd be fine. Except so often 
the Bible, it enables things like genocides, invasions, the Crusades. And then, of course, there are the moral codes, such as Leviticus 18.22, and all the other strictures that result in God hitting someone with lightning or turning a city into a pillar of salt. Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities, were turned to pillars of salt by God, not just because of the people in those cities who were committing these sinful acts of having same-sex relationships and things like that, but the neighbors, the other people who weren't committing these acts, were tolerating these acts. And because they were tolerant of them, they got turned into salt just like the people committing those sins. Justifications for righteous violence. Right down to even the strictures and moral codes. I've had numerous Christians and, and Republicans, interchangeable term really, tell me that that is the reason for all of this legislation that takes rights away from LGBTQ people. The basis for reversing gay marriage, the Obergefell decision, the birth control decision. Basically, they're saying that they're defending their city, their civilization, from being turned into pillars of salt by intervening and stopping us, us gay people, from committing the sinful acts that will draw God's wrath to them. So based on that, if you're assuming everything in the Bible is true, that it's a historical document directly given to us by God, and it's all real, it's not unreasonable to think that, well, stopping gay people from being gay, stopping gay people from having relationships, and demonstrating to God that you're not tolerating us, you know, having sex with our partners, building lives with our same-sex partners, demonstrate that to God, and, well, you'll save your city from being turned into a pillar of salt, just like Sodom, just like Gomorrah. Except that it's all fake. It's all fake. It's thoroughly contradicted by actual historical documentation. Now, I've heard the same arguments in favor of the existence of Christianity over and over again. The bake sales, the community outreach, the ability to go to your church and be counseled by the parish priest, to get good advice based in the scripture, to uh, confess your sins and cleanse your soul of them. All those positive things, that is the spoon full of sugar that helps the murder go down. Because these are things that people do all the time without being a religious organization. These are things people do all the time on a secular basis, just as human beings who want to help other people. I also used to believe that it wasn't productive to completely debunk Christianity because it had its place and that there were positive effects. You know, homeless shelters, soup kitchens and stuff that are run by churches. But that does not balance out the ledger when it comes to the amount of blood that's been spilled in service of this lie. You know, one by one going through these decisions, the gay marriage decision, if that is reversed, most gay couples will still be able to be together, will still be able to build their lives together and 
you know, wake up every day next to each other. Most, but not all. For any gay couple where an American partner has married someone from another country, that marriage is the basis for that person's uh, citizenship. And the moment that marriage disappears, becomes invalidated, well, so does that citizenship. If it's not completely naturalized, completely finalized, and they're an actual U.S. citizen, that process will end. It'll never be finalized because there will no longer be a basis for it. And then that person will be deprived of the love of their life. They'll be dragged back to their home country with no home there, no job there. Hopefully at least someone they know that they can crash with for a while, but maybe not even then. Imagine that your relationship, the next one you're in or the one you're in now, imagine that that relationship ends not because you or your partner decides that that relationship is no longer right for them, but because some stranger has decided, based on the specific will and desire of a magical sky daddy, that your relationship has to end, that life you want to build together, you don't get to because some stranger judges that the fact that you love each other is immoral. The fact that you have a physical relationship and a, and a union that's recognized is immoral. You know, relationships ending, that's normal. People deal with that every day. I've had to deal with it. I had someone leave that I thought was the love of my life and I thought I was going to die, but eventually I found a way to move on and be happy and to be happy for him. That I can live with, but having someone else decide that, that my partner, the love of my life, that we don't get to have that life together because someone else we've never met decides that we don't get to have it. That we don't get to just love each other and be that I cannot live with. How surreal is that? That your partner, the love of your life, could be taken away from you because somebody else decided that you don't get to be together. Tens of thousands of couples will be torn apart if the gay marriage decision is overturned. So many lives ruined. For what? For a lie. Now, the Obergefell decision, there are already 11 states that have anti-sodomy laws. Remember, we just talked about Sodom and Gomorrah? That is the basis for those anti-sodomy laws. Any sexual act that doesn't take place between a man and a woman and isn't just penis, vagina, reproductive intercourse, well, that'll be a prosecutable crime. People can be investigated they can get surveillance warrants and they can use infrared or thermal imaging devices to literally observe people through the exterior wall of their home using a $200 device that you can pick up at Home Depot. Exactly the device I use at work every day to monitor the temperatures of the three-phase power panels in the data centers I manage. It's not expensive and you can buy it in a number of different form factors. You can get it as a rifle optic. You can get it as a camera. You can get it as a, a handheld scanner. All you do is place it on the external wall of someone's home and you get a high fidelity image 
not only of what those two people are doing, but of the internals of their body. It actually gives you a more detailed image than a normal camera would. A judge granting a detective a surveillance warrant, a MAGA-friendly detective and a MAGA-friendly judge, they could easily put together an investigation where someone is surveilled and observed in this way and then arrested, prosecuted, dragged out of bed naked. Eleven states have these laws on the books already. And the moment the Obergefell decision is overturned, which it inevitably will be, Clarence Thomas is pushing hard and the court will listen to him, just like they did with Roe v. Wade, that is coming. And they justify it with their faith. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert are openly describing themselves as white Christian nationalists. Lauren Boebert said that the government shouldn't direct religion. Religion should direct the government. Never mind the fact that we actually have in the First Amendment a line that says this. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. That was designed to make sure that America had no official state religion. The spirit of the law says that we should be a secular country so that religion is a, con is a concept and a practice that everyone decides on for themselves rather than deciding on behalf of other people and dictating how other people live their lives and whether they get to continue living at all. The Church of England was the law in England before the Founding Fathers came here, and that was the source of some of the most legendary abuses of human rights in all of history. They used square musket balls, or tried to, that actually ended up being a, an engineering failure, but they tried to use square musket balls because round ones, when fighting against Muslims, these heathens, this, as they described them, the round musket balls would create too clean of a wound channel. They wanted something that would rip and tear and tumble and blow entire limbs off. They wanted that because a round musket ball was too good, too clean, too humane. And then we have torture devices like the pair of anguish and the Iron Maiden, drawing and quartering. Some of the most gruesome practices ever, all in service of this lie of Christianity. The Founding Fathers lived with this and they saw what happens when you take the interpretation of the unknowable, a scripture on a, in a book that was written by a person about a fictitious supernatural being was the basis for the law. And it could be interpreted and reinterpreted as needed to achieve whatever political goal someone has. The Founding Fathers knew this. And that is exactly why they wanted this to be a secular nation. They wanted this just as much as they wanted us to not have a monarch. George Washington? There was a soldier from the Revolutionary War that wrote a letter to George Washington saying that he should be the king and that he talked about how much he admired Washington. George Washington wrote back and admonished him and absolutely ripped him a new one and told him that he would go after him and destroy him and his entire family and everyone he knew.
if he even mentioned to anyone that America should ever have a king. That's so. That's how emphatic George Washington was about us being a democracy, of being a country where people are able to determine their own destiny and not have it handed down to them by some tyrant. But that's the spirit of the law, not the letter. The letter of the law says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, as in the U.S. Congress. So that only affects them on the federal level. Individual states can make laws based on religion, can base laws on the Bible. They shouldn't, if they were going to observe the spirit of the First Amendment, they wouldn't. But they disregard whatever's inconvenient to them. That's what Republicans do. They're self-serving, disingenuous fucking cowards. And I know that even if the knowledge that Christianity is absolutely, a completely, a giant fucking lie, even if that spreads coast to coast, I'm not expecting that to fix everything. I'm not. I'm hoping it'll at least fix something. I'm hoping it will at least result in us being honest with ourselves and with each other. At the very least, what I want to achieve with this is to tell Republicans to look me in the fucking eye when you reach into my life unprovoked and rip out everything that makes that life worth living. I would ask that they at least look me in the fucking eye and tell me the real reason they're doing it. Not because some magical sky daddy said it had to happen that way. You know, I'm just following the Bible. The Bible's a fucking lie. You're doing this to us because you want to. We already know this. Just because you don't say it doesn't mean that we don't know it. We know exactly what your true intentions are in doing this shit. I'm just asking that as you reach into my life and rip out everything that makes it worth living, that you have the fucking balls to not hide behind some kind of bullshit book and a magical sky daddy and just fucking own your shit. Own the fact that you are destroying people because you want to. Like I said before, I'm not an atheist. I believe there is something out there. This world contains breathtakingly beautiful things. Art, music, puppies, kittens, certain animals, plants, flowers, landscapes that are, are gorgeous to the point that it almost hurts to look at because they're so beautiful. We also have this imagination, this creativity, this ability to envision a better world, a fantastical world, or a horrifying world, depending. We have all of this. And that's what makes me think there is something. I'm almost sure of it. And I have no concrete basis for it at all. Whatever it is that put us here, we don't know the nature of it. And there are no insights into the nature of what put us here in the Bible. And that's just a fact. It's just the truth. Not because I want it to be. But just because it is. It is the truth. But that doesn't mean that we can't still have a sense of spirituality in our lives. 
that doesn't mean that we don't have a way to observe the tenets of that spirituality in certain ways. Ways that can be as organized or as free form as we want them to be. And there's nothing in the world stopping us from inviting others to participate with us in the observance of this spirituality. Because even though there are no insights in the Bible about what the nature of our creator or creating force is, that doesn't mean we don't know anything about it. Look at the world that our creator, whatever it is, look at the world that it gave us to live in. There's so much beauty and adventure and excitement and bliss available on this planet. More than enough to fill a lifetime. And it not only gave us that, but it also gave us a conscience. A conscience that haunts us when we see suffering inflicted needlessly on anyone, any creature. And that same conscience when we're the ones committing those atrocities, doing that harm, it absolutely torments us. And in a perfect world, free from all the crazy cultural and, and religious things that would teach us to ignore our conscience, I believe that conscience is all it would really take for us to treat each other humanely and compassionately. So we know something about what put us here. And that is that whatever did put us here went to an unimaginable amount of effort to give us adventure and excitement and beauty and love and creativity and a mechanism deep inside all of us, a conscience of feeling a sense of right and wrong that isn't taught, it's just inherently known by any functional person. Whatever our creator is, our creator wants us to be happy and wants us to be compassionate and accepting of each other and wants us to have some fucking fun in this life. As long as we're not hurting each other by doing it. As indicated by this conscience that we have that haunts us when we see suffering and torments us when we create suffering. That tells you almost everything that you need to know about whatever created us and about this life that we're living that you would need to know to live that life in an honorable way, in a compassionate way, in, in a way that you can remember with fondness both your own life and the lives of other people who have passed on. We have all the tools. We have everything we need. We don't need to replace that with our creation. We don't need to create a mythology. We have everything we need. And it's almost like we're not even thankful for it. And that to me is, is sadder than almost anything else except for the ways that we harm each other so often. 
Anyway, I'm going to keep working on this project. And when it's ready, I'll record it and put it up right here. Probably nobody will ever hear it, but as always, I will have gotten it off my chest and that will at least oh, help me go on about my day. And that's it.